0: It's 7.30 and probably time to start with a prayer. Lord Jesus, you promised that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And we are asking that you honor that promise today as you honor all of your promises. Lord, we're working really hard to dig through the scripture and try to open our ears and really hear what you have to say to us. Lord, please bring order out of confusion. And with your Holy Spirit, give us understanding, knowledge, and peace. In Jesus' name, amen. All righty, we're going to start with... The handout that says two things Jesus said. This handout again anchors us in Revelation 3 verse 10. Because that's the verse we're trying to understand. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, the word from there is the Greek word ek, E-K, ek, and it's listed right there. And I'm going to teach you this Greek word first thing this morning, okay? Uh, I need a volunteer. And I need someone to pick a card, any card, out of my hand. Ah, you can turn it over and look at it queen of diamonds. All right. Now, I need you to pick a card from my hand. And you got the ten of hearts. Okay. Now, I got some questions for you. What words did I use to tell them to pick the card? I said, pick the card out of my hand, right? right. I said, pick the card from my hand. Right? I could have said, pick the card ek, my hand. That's what ek means in Greek, is out or from. Okay? The word is used generally in a context of some sort. It's just a preposition. Okay? So it's used in a context. Now, the context that these cards came from, where did the cards come from? My hand. Right? The, <laughs> <that's right. laughs> the cards came from my hand okay so christ in his in his statement here is saying he is going to save us or take us from or out of the t- the hour of testing okay our dilemma here is Is when does he do that okay it's not whether he does it it's when he does it the question is does he do it before there is an hour of testing does he do it during the hour of testing or does he do it after the hour of testing okay so that's what we're trying to figure out because that's what the whole argument about rapture is about for that reason i Put in here the second thing that Jesus said, because in the letter to Philadelphia it was just one little verse. I'm going to save you from the hour of testing. That could be translated, "I'm going to save you out of the hour of testing," as in you're in it and I'm plucking you out of it. It could mean that I'm saving you, I'm saving you from it before it ever starts. Okay? It could also mean I'm saving you from it in the sense that I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That you are what is preserved from that hour of testing. Not that you missed it, but that you're the gold. So we're going to look at, we're going to start with what Christ says, because I think that's a great place to start. But then we're going to go through the events that he talks about. And we're going to look at Scripture, the rest of Scripture, about those events. People talk to you all the time about being sure that you take Scripture in context, right? Right? and about how you read the, the verses before and the verses after. That's absolutely true. You've got to do that. But that's the easy context. The hard context is, that, is by topic where you're taking the topic and then looking at the context across all of Scripture where that topic is talked about. And that's why we're working so hard in here is because we're taking that horizontal slice that almost never gets taken. So we're going to work on that um, to to understand this. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 21, verse 7. He's talking to his disciples about things that are going to happen at the end. And they say, but teacher, when are these things going to happen? How how are we going to know that they're about to happen? And Jesus reminds them, you know, if somebody says, I'm already here, don't believe them. Because there's all these signs that are going to happen before I get there. He said, For one thing, nation's going to rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be earthquakes, plagues, famines, terrors, signs in the heaven. You know, it's going to be pretty cataclysmic um, before I show. And he said also before all these things, in verse 12, he says, you're going to be persecuted. They're going to lay their hands on you and drag you in front of kings, rulers, You're not going to know what to say. Don't even worry about what you're going to say. Because I will be there with you. And I will put the words in your mouth what to say. So just don't even worry about it. He said, you know what? You will be betrayed by your very own family. You will be deserted. And you will be put to death. Some of you will be put to death. He said, you will all be hated. And then he says the strangest thing in verse 18. He just said you're going to get put to death. In verse 18, he says, yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. With an exception of one person he was talking to, all of the guys he was talking to were martyred. So when God says, not a hair of your head will perish, he's not talking about you know you're not going to be martyred you're not going to go through suffering he's talking about eternally he's talking about you your salvation and then he goes on to say here's how you know i'm fixing to come here's how you know when the end times are are happening when you see jerusalem surrounded by by armies you know her desolation is near And and then he goes into that the whole famous passage about, you know, pick up your stuff and leave. Woe to you if you're pregnant, you know, and and it's hard for you to leave if you can't walk or whatever. If you're in Jerusalem and you see this, you need to get out of there. For us to see these things and flee, we have to be there. Okay? We have to at least have made it that far. Now, we're going to flee. That implies we go somewhere. Okay? Then he says, then there will be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars um, on the earth. Dismay among the nations, perplexity at roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and from the expectation of the things that are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near to me that is jesus right there is saying when we see the signs and the sun the moon the stars when the heavens are shaking when we see these things begin to happen we should know he his coming is imminent we should be looking at the sky because he's coming now he's saying everybody on earth is going to see him the rest of the guys are going to be shaking in utter fear, abject terror. But we should not fear because we know our salvation draweth near, right? That's what he's saying to them. And Then he told them a little parable. He said, you know, this shouldn't be hard for you to understand because when a fig tree comes up in the spring, and start sprouting little beds of leaves, you know springtime's coming, right? Okay? He says, that's how you're gonna know that I'm going to be there. Truly he says on verse thirty two, truly, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, obviously generation here means age. Okay. It doesn't mean those physical people sitting right there, because these things are going to take a long time to happen. Well, now how do we know that? This the the, how, the question was, how do we know that? We know that. that n- no, we don't just decide that. We know that from what he says has to happen. Okay, so we we know that all those things haven't happened. Has has the sun darkened, fallen out of the sky? Have the heavens been shaken? Has Jesus Christ come in glory? No. Because he said it would be unmistakable. We would know. He said, if they lie to you and tell you that I already came and you missed it, don't believe them. Mm -hmm. That's how we know. It could be in our generation. It could be in our generation. It could be in any generation. Could fast, they absolutely could happen fast. The only time frame we've run across so far, we looked at last week. Remember in the timelines from Daniel where he gives us the seven-year period and defines that at the end of that seven-year period, Christ is coming? You know, the, think of a seven-year period in all of eternity. What a blip that is on the screen, Right? Okay, that is a time. That is a period. That is an instant in time. Okay, and that, as a kernel, is what Jesus is talking about. Okay. not we know that the, the disciples even thought that he meant? I mean, weren't they originally the disciples? The Christians, everybody were confused because they said, and because that's what gave rise to all of the controversy that Paul had to address with the early Christians. It was well, should we? He said. They said, yeah. we're not getting married. And they said, well, he said, well, it's okay to go ahead and get married. You know, if you're going to get married, get married. It's not like life should stop. And then they got co- confused and worried because some people were falling fallen asleep. They weren't dying. Yeah. That was very alarming based on this. And Paul repeated this. He said, don't worry about this. Remember the things that have to happen before Christ comes. Don't be fooled. Don't be shaken. You know, talked several times about the time being close, right? Yeah. Right, and it is close. It's close to us. It's imminent, but from a obviously from an eternal perspective, from Christ's perspective, it's the same perspective that He was speaking from when He said, "Not a hair of your your head will perish." That could be confusing, so it's it's about perspective here, and Jesus almost always talks from an eternal perspective. A lot of the stuff that we're going to study today and next week really will help bring some of the parables that Jesus talks about into focus, into perspective. All of a sudden, they'll make a lot more sense. So then he says, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation, drunkenness, and that the day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. Okay, well, for it to come on us, we got to be there. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. That last sentence to me sounds very, it echoes what we read in every single letter to the churches in Revelation. What was the last thing almost always that he said? to he who overcomes the message is to people who are going to need that message we're going to we're going to have something to overcome now you can interpret these things a lot of different ways still people read this and they say well when we start to see those things happening jesus could come and save us out of them Or in the middle of those things happening, Jesus could come and save us out of them. Or at the end, Jesus could come and save us out of them. You're going to have to decide for yourself what you think. We're going to focus this week and next on the information you need to be able to make that decision. All right. I have a bias that I'm going to tell you in advance so that you know what my bias is. I read this and I think it's saying we're going to live through the tribulation and Jesus is going to come and that's when we're going to be raptured. That's what I think. But I am not going to tell you that's what you have to think. Okay? I'm just. I think we're going to live through the tribulation and then be raptured when Jesus comes. Okay? People who think that Jesus. Come, that were raptured first essentially split the second coming into two pieces where he, where he kind of comes and gets us before the tribulation and then really comes after the tribulation. All right. So, and there are some people who think he comes right in, when the great tribulation starts. In other words, some people think he comes at the beginning of the seven years. Some people think he comes in the middle when the great tribulation starts. And some people think he comes at the end. All right. So I want you to know my bias so that you can account for that, okay, in, in my presentation. But I'm going to show you why I think that, but ev- I'm not hiding any scripture from you. I'm not keeping things from you that would prove the point otherwise, okay? So you're going to have all the pieces to be able to decide for yourself what you really think. So we want, where we want to go next is to the handout that's titled Day of the Lord, This day is talked about all over the place in scripture. We've read some of it already. One of the names, it's got several names. One of the names is a day of reckoning. Isaiah 2 verse 10. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up. ...that he may be abased. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks... ...and into holes of the ground... ...before the terror of the Lord... ...and the splendor of his majesty... ...when he arises to make the earth tremble. That's your first picture... ...of what the day of the Lord looks like. It's going to be a day of wrath. The earth is going to be desolated. The sun, the moon, and the stars... ...are not going to shine... And death and violence will fall on the wicked. Now God is not directing wrath and punishment at us. Ever. But he is saying this day is going to come and fall on the wicked. Isaiah 13:6. Wait, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. "...cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Anyone who is found will be thrust through and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Not a pretty picture. There's a whole lot of prophecies in scripture about the day of the Lord. I did not put in here Joel chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. But you can put the references there for you to look up later. In um, Isaiah 34 that same day is called a day of vengeance and a year of recompense. So. I want you to focus on the fact that it's not necessarily a split moment day, okay? It's it can incorporate a period of time. All right. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, and the world and all that springs from it. The Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and His wrath against all their armies. The body count at this time is going to be horrific he the Lord has utterly destroyed them he has given them over to slaughter this is the nations so their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give off their stench the mountains will be drenched with their blood very physical very literal the sun moon and the stars pass away both physically and apparently spiritually you know we talked about hosts of heaven and how there's a spiritual reality um Number four, all the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. That can mean that his sword is proceeding from heaven and is being satiated on earth or in the context of those preceding scriptures it sounds like he's doing some things in heaven as well as on earth which makes sense if it's the day of the Lord and there are spirits in heaven and spirits on earth but then he has a special punishment for a land called Edom which is the land right around the very south part of the Dead Sea now Edom we talked about in an earlier lesson is the land of Israel's brother and has always been a source of enmity and strife for the nation of Israel. And there is a particular punishment reserved for Edom in the day of the Lord. Behold, it, that is the Lord's sword, shall descend for judgment on Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. Their land will be soaked with blood and their dust become greasy with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, and its loose earth into brimstone, and its land will become burning pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. From generation to generation it will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. The whole bit about unquenched fire is a common motif, a common theme in the day of accompanying the day of the Lord. In Isaiah sixty six, fifteen, Behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire, and his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. They will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Okay, now, was this directed at the Christians? No. Okay. Is this directed at us, at believers? No. But it is a fearsome picture directed at the wicked. And those who stand up on their hind legs... And mock the Lord. The day is also referred to as a day of darkness. Even though it's a day of fire, it's a day of darkness. What does that remind you of? We studied about it recently. The lake of fire, the eternal lake of fire. Remember how Jesus said it's a place of darkness, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth? that's what's being said here this is the fire of the lord it's for some reason this fire is associated not with light but with extreme darkness joel 2 verse 1 blow a trumpet in zion and i bolded that so that you recognize he's speaking to people who are actually on earth in israel in you know jerusalem okay Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then you get to see kind of how the Lord is going to make this happen. Because there's going to be a massive army so big surrounding Jerusalem That there will not be one like it for many generations after that. Look what it says. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like a garden of Eden before them. But a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They They, he's talking about this mighty army, run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path, and when they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. You see, this great and mighty people with whatever machinery of war that is being described here is, being, is, is operating as the Lord's army right here. Now... Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? But even in the midst of all this terror and wrath, the Lord still has a heart for his people, for their repentance. Right in the middle of all of this picture of destruction, look what he says. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, with its vanguard in the eastern sea and its rear guard in the western sea. And its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up. What this is saying... Is the Lord will raise this huge, massive, unbelievable army to come against Jerusalem. It's going to surround them, just like Jesus said in that opening passage. Okay? Jesus says, when you see that run, the the Lord is going to bring this army and they are going to attack Jerusalem. And they're going to be winning. We're going to read some more about that in a minute. But the Lord says, repent. And when you repent, I will save you. And look what he says. He's going to turn against that army and he's going to utterly destroy that army of people that had brought themselves against Israel it's very hard for us to grasp this okay and in the holiness of the Lord well Lord how could you sucker all those armies in there and then you know kill them and and it's because of the sin of those people of those Gentile nations all right But the Lord can use anybody as his tool. And right here he's using these Gentile armies. And it says northern armies. Where did the Antichrist come from? Remember? The north. Who was his God? The God of fortresses. Military. All of this stuff is happening at the end of the Great Tribulation. And the Antichrist is very much involved in this. Well, it's just a... If we notice throughout the Bible, every time that God punishes us or destroys nations, he always, always leaves us a way out. That's, that's right. He, 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 he does until the final moment. But yes, absolutely. His heart is, I'm trying to drive you to your knees. You know, I'm trying to save you and bring you back to me. Joel 2, verse 30. This is just skipping down a little further in the same chapter. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. Just like you said, Marvin, right? Jesus comes right in the middle of this battle, at Israel's most def- desperate point. We're going to read Zechariah 14, verse 1. We've read this a couple of times. Uh, we read it in our Daniel class. This is, this is really an amazing passage. Because it describes what Jesus is going to do when he gets here. Okay. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you, Israel, will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. See, there again it says, he says, he's the one who's gathering those nations against Israel. And the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So there's going to be some people still left in the city. Some people who are killed, some people who are injured. But some, and some people who are, are captured and, and drug off but some people are going to be left then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations the very same nations that he rose against Israel the Lord is coming to fight against them as when he fights on the day of battle in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives the Mount of Olives is just east of, of Jerusalem okay And fight against the, I'm sorry, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountains will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. That's when Jesus comes, right there. Mount of Olives is going to split and Jesus is going to come along with his holy ones. We're going to look at that a little later. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Now this is very, very consistent so far with what we read in Joel, isn't it? For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them towards the eastern sea. And the other half towards the western sea. Well that makes sense because there's a big valley there now right? It just got split and there now is a channel from one sea to the other. And look back in Joel. What did he say? Where did he say he was going to put do with that northern army? He said he was going to put the front of them Off in the eastern sea, and the back of them off in the western sea. All of this is like talking about the same time, the same event. Let's see. Waters flow out of Jerusalem, and it will be summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, in his name, the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba, which is about six miles north of Jerusalem, to Ramon, which is 35 miles south of Jerusalem. So all of the land around Jerusalem is going to be utterly flattened. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's Gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the Tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it And there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Okay, so in addition to losing the battle, the nations that sent this army are going to be punished. And here's what's going to happen to them. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also like this, this plague will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps. So this plague is going to fall on the camps of this army, okay, on the surrounding nations that sent this army against Jerusalem. Then it will come about that any who are left of all those nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So now let's skip over to Revelation and read Revelation's account of this battle. It's very brief. I saw it's in Revelation 19:11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who, who can that be? Only one person. Jesus. Continue to verse 14, and we see who comes with him. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Jesus is accompanied by the armies of heaven on white horses, just as he is mounted. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is a little verse back, a couple of chapters back in Revelation. In Revelation 17:14, that also refers to who comes with Christ when he comes. Verse 14. These, and it's talking about the earthly kings, the Antichrist, and the others who are part of this battle. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those who are with him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. We, we are by definition with him, right? Even now we are with him. And the, the fact that, we're, that he's going to overcome is as much a statement of what's happening now, what has already happened on the cross, as it is a statement of, of the culmination that will happen at this great battle. If we continue on in Revelation 19, in verse 17, we find out that the person leading this army is the Antichrist. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. This again speaks to the death count, right? To the body count that's fixing to happen. And I saw the beast, who, who is the Antichrist, that's who that is in, in Revelation, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the white horse and his army. And the beast, the Antichrist, was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns burns with brimstone. We've already studied what that lake of fire is, right? Second death. And it's eternal. And the rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with with their flesh same battle we know the name of, or we have named this battle the battle of Armageddon because of where it takes place it's talked about in Revelation 16 verse 13 and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon who is Satan and out of the mouth of the beast who who is the antichrist and out of the mouth of the false prophet who we're going to study about later three unclean spirits like frogs for they are spirits of demons performing signs Which go out to the kings of the whole world. To gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And then look what Jesus puts in. Right at that point when he's talking about that final battle. Behold I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. So that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. What do we know about clothes? We know that clothes are our righteous deeds. Clothes are the the deeds, the works. Okay, we've taught. Jesus gives us clean garments. He makes our works righteous. Okay. He says, this right here, we're talking right all about this battle of Armageddon. And then Christ says, remember, I'm coming like a thief. You need overcome. Stick with it. Do what I've called you to do. And and then it continues on. It's like this little parenthesis, and then it continues on. And they gathered them together. This is the kings gathered all, the Satan, the Antichrist, and the, and the false prophet gather the kings of the earth together to the place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. That's where we get the, the name of the Battle of Armageddon, because of where it happens. To me, and, and, you know, I've already told you my bias, but the fact that Jesus talks about coming like a thief right in the middle of the Battle of Armageddon to me is Him saying, "Remember what I told you about when I'm coming." Do you, I'm sorry, but mm-hmm. what do you think when all this is real localized, right around Jerusalem? What are we going to be doing over here? There may not be an over here at, by that time. You think? Okay. That is like undergrad. There may not be an over here by, that, by, the, by the time the Great tribulation's done. I've heard that America won't. won't exist. I, I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that says it will or it won't, but there's a great deal we're going to study about disasters that are going to wipe out two-thirds of the earth. Okay. All right, Ezekiel um, 39 also talks about this battle. And now that you've seen two accounts of it, you're going to recognize a great deal Of what Ezekiel has to say. About this battle. Son of man prophesy against Gog. And say. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you O Gog. Chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around. And drag you along. I will bring you from the far north. And send you against the mountains of Israel. Alright. So now we know something else about. This army. We now know. That this army is led by some ruler who God calls Gog. Okay, now that may not be what we call him. Okay, But that's what God calls him. And he's the prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now you will see a great deal of teaching that Gog and his country, which is Magog, we'll find out later, is Russia. I want you to understand that nobody knows who Gog and Magog are. Okay, all we know is they come from the north because it says so. Part of why people think it's Russia is because that was the context we were living in. Okay, another reason is because the word translated chief here is Rosh, which sounds like Russia. And Meshach sounds like Moscow. So that whole theory of it being Russia is on pretty flimsy territory as far as I'm concerned. Okay, Now it may well be Russia. But it doesn't say it's Russia. So don't be blinded by that. This is what it says. Now, the Lord here is showing he's in control. This is another glimpse that we have into the heart of the Lord. And the fact that even though he's raising him up, these armies up, look how he describes it. He says, I'm against you, Gog. I will turn you around and drag you along. So the Lord is simply using Gog. On the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog and all those who live in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. Now, if Gog ever read his Bible, maybe he wouldn't go to war. The Lord is not doing anything in secret here. He's telling him exactly what's going to happen. Verse 7. I will make known my holy name again among my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned. And the nations will know that I, the Lord, am the Holy One of Israel. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is the day I have spoken of. Meaning, this is the day of the Lord. Okay, This is it. Then... Some amazing prophecy. The mass of weapons heaped on the mountains of Israel after this battle provide fuel to Israel for seven years afterwards. Those who live in the town of Israel will go out and use the weapons for fuel and burn them up. The small and large shields, the bows and arrows, the war clubs and spears. For seven years they will use them for fuel. They will not need to gather wood from the fields or cut it from the forest because they will use the weapons for fuel. And they will plunder those who plundered them and loot those who looted them, declares the sovereign Lord. On that day, I will give Gog a burial place in Israel in the valley of those who travel east towards the sea. There again is that valley from the split of the Mount of Olives. It will block the way of travelers because Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called the Valley of Haman Gog. Haman means hordes. Valley of the hordes of Gog. It will take seven months to bury all of the dead from this army. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them. And the day I am glorified will be a memorable day for them, declares the Sovereign Lord. Men will be regularly employed to cleanse the land. Some will go through the land, and in addition to them, others will bury those that remain on the ground. And at the end of seven months, they will begin their search. As they go through the land and one of them sees a human bone, he will set up a marker beside it until the grave diggers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. The carnage is going to be so great. That Israel is going to have dedicated grave diggers for seven months. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals. Assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you. The great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. At my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers of every kind, declares the sovereign Lord. I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. From that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God, and the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sin because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will now bring Jacob back from captivity and will have compassion on all the people of Israel. I will be zealous for my holy name. They will forget their shame and all the unfaithfulness they showed to me when they lived in safety in their land with no one to make them afraid. And I put in here just a, a parenthesis. He's talking about, you know, the whole period of when they're in the promised land before they were dispersed. Okay. This is, you know, he's talking about the time when they were sinning. They were in safety. They were fat, dumb, and happy. And they were worshiping idols. That's why they got dispersed. Okay. When I have brought them back from the nations and have gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will show myself wholly through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. For though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them. For I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. We looked at. At that, when we studied the fate of Israel last week, it's all bound up together. So, here's a couple of observations to take away from this. The day of the Lord is physical. This is very graphic. People are dying here. It, the second coming is not airy, fairy, fuzzy. It's not floaty, fun. The Lord appears on a great white horse with the armies of heaven around him. He has a sword coming out of his mouth. And he has king of kings, lord of lords, emblazoned on his hip. And he proceeds to kill so many people that it takes the Israelites seven months to bury them all. Maybe not the picture you had in your mind of the coming of Christ. But that's what the Bible says it's like. The second thing is to remember or to realize that after the second coming of Christ, people do not evaporate. We don't all, all of a sudden, turn into ghosts. We aren't all spirits. There's physical, real people with bodies on earth who have to go through and cleanse the land and bury the dead, right? It's very physical, the earth continues to exist after the second coming of Christ. And people eat, they marry, they die, they have babies, they, they bury people. It's all it, The earth continues. The difference is who's ruling it. Now, one of the purposes and outcomes of the day of the Lord is judgment. For all of the nations for their treatment of, Jer- of, the, of Israel. So this is all the nations through, into which they were dispersed. Which is all of them right? Okay. For behold Joel 3.1. For behold in those days and at that time. When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And that literally means that word means Yahweh shall judge. He's bringing them to a valley of judgment. Then I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. And they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Since you have taken my silver and my gold brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory, behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. The Sabaeans occupy a region that we now call Yemen. Then, if you continue on to verse 9, there's like a review of what has happened. The Lord talks about his call to these Gentile nations. It's a whole recap of the battle of Armageddon. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your printing hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Listen and come, all you surrounding nations, gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. You know, little did they know that it was they were being gathered to their very own destruction. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. There again is that whole treading the grapes of wrath, right? That it says Christ is going to do when he comes. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Which is just a whole other word for the valley of Jehoshaphat the sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness so here you know, another characteristic where you can see it's talking about that time of his second coming and the, and the battle of Armageddon the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel he, he doesn't leave us here alone he's still our refuge even in this horrible horrible day Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations. I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. You can see that this is occurring over a time period. You know, these people are gathering. The Lord is calling the carrion, the birds to come. The whole, this whole great tribulation kind of builds to a crescendo right here at the end, in in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is used in Scripture in a number of ways. The, the, that single day, but also, as I pointed out. It also refers to a period. And, and many people think it refers to the period of the entire seven, 70th week, that last seven years. Some people think it just refers to the great tribulation, the last half of that. And some people think it just refers to that single day. My response to that is, well, it depends on who's talking and what they're talking about. Okay, It could refer to any and all of those because all of that is the 70th week, which I believe... Can all of that as the day of the Lord, and just you have to tell from the context which one he's talking about—the the last day, or the whole period. So I've given you, especially in the New Testament, it gets telescoped a lot, and they talk about that seven years that in, as an instant. Look at Luke 17:26, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. Okay, so it says the days, for one thing they're in the at the time of the flood they're eating they're drinking they're making merry the flood comes on them, wipes them out right he says the same thing happened with Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Lot they're busy sinning and being wicked and the day of the Lord just fell on them okay and wiped them out he said it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. It says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Here you can see it started out talking about the days of the Son of Man. About halfway through, it talked about the day that Christ comes. And then at the end, it's talking about the night. You know, it just kind of like funnels down. Just in that one passage, you can see the term used in three different ways. Matthew 24:15 is the one where it talks about when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel. Whoever's on the housetop, don't go down to get your stuff. If you're in the field, don't go back to get your cloak. For then there will be a great tribulation. And then it goes on to talk about, you know, don't be fooled by people who says Jesus came. Behold, I already told you, I told you in advance don't be fooled, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So this is differentiating the you know, day of the Lord as a, as a period of time from the coming, Okay, that moment. You, can, you read this whole time flipping around all the time. Look at Second Thessalonians 2. This is Paul talking, not Jesus. This is Paul. Now we request you brethren with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed by anybody who says to the effect the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now that's the antichrist. Okay, the day of the Lord is not coming until the antichrist comes. We know he comes at the beginning when he signs that covenant, you know, of the seven years. We know that he is going to, you know, call himself God. That. Is probably the abomination, but we don't know that for sure, okay, that sits in the temple. And then lastly, 1 Thessalonians 5.2. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. And we're going to stop there. And I just want you to ponder on that last scripture. Because it says, the day of the Lord, which could mean the last day, the whole period, whatever you take it to mean. That day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come without warning to those who have not stayed alert. But here in this verse, Paul says to us who are believers who have studied and who know these signs, it should not be a surprise to us.